0: Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. With the train of his robe filling the temple, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew with me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven.
1: Morning, church. I think all of us struggle with our level of devotion to God and our focus on God. Like, if we really believed he was as great and grand as we confess that he is, why do we spend so little time thinking about him? And why, as we go throughout our days and lives and weeks, are there moral lapses where we go for a few minutes, a few hours, sometimes even a few days, just acting like God's not even real, like he's not even important, like he's not the central thing in our lives that we confess him to be? Right, my family knows well enough that I have these moments of where my frustration gets the best of me, And all of a sudden, God's not in the picture anymore. His holiness isn't what's important to me. What I'm upset about is what's important to me. And there I am living and acting as if the God that I confess to worship for a few minutes, he's just not my God. So what's going on here? What do we need to change? What do we need to see about God that we're not seeing so that we can change into the kind of people who live out the thing that we confess. You're not a Christian this morning. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're visiting. You might wonder why it is that Christians insist that our God and our God alone is worshipped. And you might wonder why we insist that all of our lives be completely devoted and dedicated to him 100% without any exception. As we get into our text this morning, we're going to try to answer all of these questions as we see God as he is. Now, as a lot of you know from last week, we're in a Knowing God series. Pastor Sam preached the first sermon in the series last week. One really crucial and important point he said is that our conception of who God is, who we believe God is, shapes deeply, maybe more than anything, everything and anything we do. So if we find ourselves living in a particular way that's not becoming of the lord that's not godly that's not holy what we need to do is take our attention and ask what is it that we believe about him what are we missing what do we need to see that we're not believing so that our lives and behavior can change be completely devoted to him it's exactly what we're going to do this morning we're going to go to isaiah chapter 6 we're going to see what isaiah saw We're going to hear what Isaiah heard, we're going to feel what he felt, and then we're going to see how God responded to him. So Isaiah was a young man, and he might have been at the temple, and like so many of the prophets in the Bible, suddenly his eyes were open to see the God that he was being called to go and proclaim. He sees wonderful things, and he sees terrifying things. And in the process, it's going to leave him a changed and transformed person. That's why I hope... That's what my hope is that God does us, to us this morning, that as we say, see this same vision and the same picture of God that Isaiah saw, that, he, that we leave this room, change and transform people all the more. So let's hop into our text and let's begin by seeing what Isaiah saw. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. We get one little brief note about the historical setting. It was the year the king died. Transfers of power when the king dies would have been a chaotic and fear-filled time. Like even today, if a sitting president died and there was a transfer of power, it would be a confusing and chaotic time. How much more in the ancient world? More than that, it was not a good time in Israel's history. There was th- threats on the borders. There were empires far larger than themselves coming towards them. Their lives would have f- been filled with anxiety, depression, fear, chaos, and confusion. And as his, Isaiah's life and the people that he lives around, their lives are filled with the kind of emotions that the modern world pumps into our hearts. His eyes are suddenly opened to see the thing that he needs to see. In the year That the human king died, he saw the divine king who never dies, whose reign never ends. The human king was the shadow, the temporary, unimportant reality. His eyes were open to see the true reality, the reality that never ends, the reality that created all other reality. He saw the Lord. He saw the thing that I need to see more than than anything else. He saw the person you need to see more than anyone else. Just look at his descriptions of who he saw. He saw a divine king sitting on his throne. This is the one who's exercising authority in all places, at all times, over the entire cosmos. He's high and lifted up. There's no rivals to this king. He does not... Accept any rival. He does not struggle with any rival. He is the one who's high and lifted up above far others, all others. And then it says he has a really big robe. His robe is filling the whole room. Right, you could think of maybe like the closest thing I can think of is a bride on her wedding day just having this massive train, right, on her wedding gown. And the Lord's robe, this massive robe, testifies to his unsurpassed majesty that fills every room that he's in. Everyone knew who was sitting on this throne because his majesty was filling the throne room. Isaiah was stunned. The point of these words is that as we meditate them, as we learn from them who our God is, we should be more and more stunned than ever before, shouldn't we? And now, verse 2, we're going to keep seeing what Isaiah saw. Keep experiencing what he experienced. His vision starts off amazing. It starts off lofty. It's going to take a turn into some terrifying territory. And we get, begin to see hints of that here in verse 2 as we begin to see some really strange things in the throne room of God. Verse 2 Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So God is the king seated on the throne. The seraphim are standing nearby as if they're servants. Well, what is a seraphim? A seraphim is an angel, probably of a very high rank because they're near the throne of God. Now, seraphim is actually just a Hebrew word. So if you translate the word seraphim, it simply means burning ones. The angels who are standing around the one on the throne are either on fire or they appear as if they're on fire. It's meant to communicate something about the one sitting on the throne. The people who serve him are literally on fire. There's some amazing power or glory emanating from this one who's high and lifted up. And they got six wings. They only need two of them to fly. Right? So what are they doing with these other four wings? They're covering different parts of their body, and that's pointing to the separation between them and the one who sits on the throne who is like no other. These seraphim, these ones who are consumed with fire, they're not like us. They're not impure. They are pure beings, and I think that's maybe what the fire symbolizes, the purity of these beings who stand around the throne of God, and yet, as pure as they are, they're not allowed to look at him. They are not allowed to see him. And wings cover their feet, which I take as a sign of their creatureliness. The separation between them and between God, it, it's because that he alone is the creator and they are the creation. And by virtue of being creator, there's a separation between God and his creation. He alone is the transcendent one. He alone is the high and mighty one. And no matter how pure or how perfect anything else is, there, our God is utterly transcendent and worthy of everyone's focus and worship. He's unique. He is unique, one of a kind. And the way that these angels are situated is testifying to that. Now we've seen what Isaiah saw in his vision. Now let's hear what he heard. And as we listen to these words, they're going to start to explain and unpack the things that he saw. Verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They repeat a word three times. That word is holy. In the Hebrew language, when you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. So if you want to say that I am married to a very beautiful woman, you would say that she is a beautiful, beautiful woman. This is the case for me. So what could it mean then that these seraphim do not say that God is holy, holy, but that he's holy, holy, holy? This is the highest emphasis in the Hebrew language that you could place on something. This is like 10 exclamation points. There's no other way within the Hebrew language that the seraphim could have communicated something more strongly than this. To say he's holy, holy, holy three times is saying, I don't know There's of any other way more powerful to say than God is holy. If you look through the scriptures, you won't find him described three times with any other of his attributes. Only here and here alone is he described as holy, holy, holy. So if the Bible... Put so much emphasis on holiness wouldn't we want to know what it is why don't you take a moment and just even just reflect to yourself if someone wanted you to describe the topic of holiness to them how would you describe it how would you explain what it means that god is holy go ahead and reflect to yourself based off the content of this passage and this Bible and the Bible, I take the word holiness to mean the unique worthiness God has because he is the creator and the source of moral purity. There is one that all things came from and because he's the one that all things ca- came from, he's the one who alone defines what is good and evil and he is the source of everything good. There's what, like this white hot purity about God's person. There's this white hot worthiness about this person. This is intense. Who God is is intense. That's what this verse is communicating to us. There is a weight to who God is that surpasses the weight of anyone and everything else. And that's really helpful to me because the culture that I grew up in was one of flippancy and joking and sarcasm. So that's my tendency. God is a holy God. He's worthy of all my worship. He's worthy of all my response. And that's just not the kind of person I am. And yet I'm challenged by who he is to become that kind of man. We're challenged to become that kind of person based off of who God is. Do you struggle sometimes to recognize how much worship God is worthy of? Do you struggle sometimes to give him the kind of response that he's worthy of? Has the culture made you flippant? Has the culture made you sarcastic? Has the culture deadened you to the divine and kept you from being as reverent towards God as you should be? Right? If you're like me, we need visions like this. We need reminders of who God is so that we can respond to him rightly based off of who he is. Amen? Next, the seraphim say, The whole earth is full of his glory. So, because of who God is, he alone deserves his magnificence to go global. He alone deserves recognition and worship from every person on planet earth. That's what this is alluding to. He is the king, and his glory should stretch from shore to shore from ocean to ocean, from continent to continent, until it covers the whole world, he alone is the one who is worthy to be seen, worshipped, and admired by everyone and everything in every place. And yet, this is where we encounter the problem and the twists in this text. At this very moment, right, When the seraphim are proclaiming that God's glory deserves to be witnessed by everyone and everything, suddenly there's a barrier between Isaiah and the Holy One on the throne. So let's go to the next verse. Let's go to the next part of this story and see what happens as Isaiah approaches a holy God. Verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So you can imagine God in the throne room and Isaiah attempting to approach God and the entryway to the room starts to shake. That would alarm me, and it should. That would alarm Isaiah, and it did. And all of a sudden, this sight he has of this glorious king on the throne becomes obscured as smoke fills the room. He's not allowed to enter the room. He's not allowed to gaze into the room. There's a scholar named Alec Moyter, and he points out that at the moment that Isaiah is attempting to approach God, access is denied and he is excluded from the presence of God. He is not allowed in. This is not the only time this happens in Scripture. If you remember earlier on in the Bible, there's this mount called Mount Sinai. After the people leave slavery in Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai. They go to meet God, and what do they find? What do they find there? They find a trembling mountain, a mountain that's covered with smoke, a mountain they're not allowed to approach. It's like they're not approaching Mount Sinai. It's like they're approaching Mount Doom. So why is it in the Bible that every time people are drawing near to God, it looks like they're drawing near to the end of the world? Like, isn't that a little strange? I've heard so many great sermons and true sermons and lovely sermons about how loving our God is and about how he welcomes everyone near to him and about how he wants us to come, and it's all true. But if that's true, why is it so scary when people come into his presence? Is anyone else, like, confused by that? Does that seem a little strange to anyone? And it's helpful to know that this is not the way it always was. This is not the way that it was in the beginning. In the beginning, God created a beautiful, good world. He was holy, right? He even points it out on the seventh day. There's this holy day where we alone can recognize God's holiness. And Adam and Eve have this beautiful intimacy with God where they get to walk with him, commune with him, know him, love him, fellowship with him. And it's not scary at all. There's this wonderful welcome to God's people to come and be close to him. And it's not terrifying Encounters with God only become scary in the Bible after human sin enters the equation. You see, the this, this situation is not like this because of God. It's like this because of Isaiah, and it's like this because of all of us. We're the ones who have transgressed and offended God's holiness, and so now an encounter with God becomes scary. As the holy, holy, holy one, he must not let anything defiling or impure into his presence. And if we are not holy, the last place in the world we belong is in the presence of the one who is holy, holy, holy. You see the problem there? You see why Isaiah is not allowed in? It's because he is tainted like his first parents. And to come into the presence of God would be to offend him and denigrate him. And so his entrance to the throne room of God is denied and barred and the foundations shake and the smoke obscures his vision and this is precisely, right, what Isaiah sees. He acknowledges that this is the case. Look at verse five. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, of hosts. Isaiah says, What? Woe is me, which means too bad for me. This is really bad for me. I am lost. Like he's being destroyed. He senses that his destruction is near. Why? because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, right? The unclean lips represent the impurity of his whole person, and perhaps it's pointing to the fact that his words and the words of his people are evidences of their impurity. Like, just think of the things things you say and the thoughts you have at your very worst moments. These are clues to me and to you and to all of us that we are not the pure people who belong in the presence of God, in the presence of the one who is holy, holy, holy. Look at what Isaiah says. He says, I am lost. Do you notice that there's no, there's no arguing with God? There's no, there's no like him putting his hands up and wondering, why am I lost? He simply acknowledges that, that he is. God's judgment seems so strange to us in this modern day because we've lost our sense of the holiness of God. Right? When, when he sees God's holiness, everything becomes clear. God's holiness clarifies reality for us. It clarifies that God is who he is and we are who we are. It determines that we deserve judgment and he is right and justice to do so. Right, The fact that all people apart from the grace and mercy of God are under the judgment and wrath of God is only strange if God's holiness is strange to us, if God is strange to us, if God is far from us. And yet when God is clear, when it becomes clear who he is, it becomes clear what is right for us. Holiness becomes clear by comparison. When you're able to see who God is, you're able to see who you are. When you see yourself in light of God, it becomes clear how high and exalted he is. Anyone here have a problem with comparison with other people? You ever get envious? You ever feel superior or prideful over other people, right? Think about, that person's better than me at that, or I'm not. When you see God's holiness, comparisons with other people are irrelevant. The only comparison that matters in the world is who God is and who you are, are, and all the petty stuff burns away. It clarifies what's important and who's important and what we need to focus on. So where's Isaiah going to go from here? Right? This vision started off pretty good, but it's kind of like on a, in a free fall right now, isn't it? Like, it's like, whoa, I'm seeing God, and oh no, I'm seeing God. Right? So where's he going to go? And if you notice that like so far in this vision, he's been the only one who's seen, he's been the only one who's heard, he's been the only one who's felt, he's been the only one who's acted. What has God done so far? He hasn't done anything. And so this is where God enters the equation, this is where God enters the vision, this is where God enters the scene, and he's going to act. And he's going to act when Isaiah is helpless, desperate, and hopeless, and I pray that he's going to act this morning for us, for those of us who are helpless, desperate, and hopeless, which should be all of us. Let's see what he does and how he acts, how the holy, holy, holy God acts when an unholy person, holy person approaches him. Let's take a look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar. Then he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Really strange verses, but really beautiful verses. So Isaiah cannot approach God. And at the moment where Isaiah cannot approach God, God approaches him through a mediator. Right? God reaches out to him through one of the seraphim. He comes to him. So if you've been hearing this message this morning and being like, well, I'm unholy. I guess I don't deserve to be near your God. You're right, but you're missing the most important part. Is that our God, because his heart is full of love and compassion, still comes to holy people, unholy people, nevertheless, and rescues them. So he, here this angel, the seraphim, on behalf of God, comes to Isaiah, and he comes to him with fire. He comes to him with fire. Look at these verses. How many different ways do you see the image of fire in these verses? There's a few of them here. Right, we got the burning coal as one. There's some other ones. Go ahead, take a look and study them. See, see where else we're seeing the idea of fire in these verses. If you remember what seraphim means, right, it's the burning ones. And the altar where they get the burning coal is the burning place where the people of God would make sacrifices to God in the Old Testament. So the burning one gets the burning coal from the burning place and he comes and presses it against Isaiah's lips. Fire is coming to Isaiah. And what that fire is, is that it's a picture of God's holiness drawing near to Isaiah. Fire is a picture of God's holiness in the Bible. Once again, Mount Sinai, right? When God descends on the mountain, he descends in fire. It's a picture of God's unstoppable power and his incomparable purity. Now, when something comes into the presence of fire, a substance like wood or stone or something like that, there's two possibilities. One is that the fire consumes and destroys it. The other one is that the fire refines and transforms it. That's what happens to Isaiah here. That's what's going on. Did you see it's not a burst of fire that just utterly destroys Isaiah? No, it's a controlled application of fire that rescues and transforms Isaiah. There are two opportunities for us this morning. We can either flee further from God and avoid him and throw ourselves into our sin, and when we encounter the holiness of God, it will destroy us one day, or we can flee to God for mercy, and instead of destroying us, he'll welcome us and transform us. There's this beautiful thing going on here where God has the power, and I love this, God has the power to destroy Isaiah's sin without destroying Isaiah. No one or nothing else can do that for you. To come, so Isaiah is unholy, and God makes him holy. He sanctifies him, purifies him, makes him worthy to stand in his presence. No one else and nothing else could do this for him. He was hopeless at that point until God reached out to him through this angel and purified his lips. He reaches out like a surgeon in love and performs the operation he needs to become healthy, whole, and welcome. That's how God responds to sinners who come to him. And if you notice, right, from the verse before, Isaiah is not hiding the fact that he's an unworthy sinner. If you want this to happen to you, if you want to be purified, if you want to be transformed, the first place to start is admitting to God your unholiness and your need for his help, mercy, and transformation. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So if you come to the Holy One, he loves to make you holy. He loves to make you pure. Isaiah transforms, right, from a person who is lost to accepted, from a person who's unholy to a person who's holy, and all of these images, all of these symbols, all throughout this text are pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice of God, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we get to that story, we see the one holy man who ever lived, who died as if he was unholy to make unholy people holy. That's how we approach God. That's how God drew near to us. On the cross, all of the holiness and all of the judgment against sin and all of God's purity is expressed in his judgment against Jesus on our behalf so that we can be welcomed into God's presence instead of excluded from God's presence. Do you remember what happened to the sky when Jesus hung on the cross? It became dark, right? He's, he's the one who, who is experiencing the darkness of separation from God, that God's people experience, that Isaiah experienced, so that we can be brought into the light, presence, and acceptance from him that we need more than anything but don't deserve. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the only thing I have to say to you this morning is please come to him. Please become pure. Please become holy. Our God has made an unbelievable offer to anyone who will come to him through Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. He's the holy one, and part of his holiness is that he is unfathomably good. Now, at this moment, I promise you something. I promise you something, that Isaiah was not distracted by anything petty. This moment where God is purifying his lips— his social media apps, his Netflix shows, his whatever it is that's distracting him from encountering and focusing on God is not distracting him, right? I think all of us are drowning ourselves in distractions in our lives because we have lost a reverence and respect for who God is, and the way back is to meditate on who he is daily so that we can be renewed and our focus can be placed in the right place. So Come back to him, focus on him, Let his holiness burn away every unholy distraction from your heart and from your life until you're pure, consecrated, and devoted to the God you were made for. I promise these moments of being intimate and close to God are more satisfying than any of the false pleasures, false hopes, and false opportunities this broken world is offering us. Come close to the holy God. I think you can tell this matters to me because God used this aspect of his character, this attribute, to change my life. So there I was. Fifteen years ago, I'm a freshman in college. I'm at the Free Lutheran Bible School, Plymouth, Minnesota, about a 20-minute drive from here. We have this soft-spoken professor, and he is very clear about who God is. He's very clear about who Jesus is. And I can feel myself growing. I can feel my life changing as I listen to him talk about who God is. One day he wheels this old TV in the class. It's got... Those of you who are my age probably remember these from elementary school, right? It's on the wheels. It's, v- it's just this box. He uh, he pops in this VCR from maybe the 1970s. Like production quality, very subpar, right? The, the, it's barely coming into focus. And this this young man steps onto the screen and begins talking about this very passage about God's holiness. He's the first person I ever saw tremble as he spoke. I'd never seen a person tremble as they spoke before. I remember his, like his hair shaking on top of his head. And I had never heard anyone speak about God that way before. And it, it smote my heart. Right At that moment, I had never heard of R.C. Sproul before. He's a dear minister of the Lord who just passed away recently. And as he spoke about God's holiness, as a younger man captured on video way a long time ago, this professor put it in and God used it to reveal to me afresh who he is. And I remember that it had an effect on me because after that, it started to change who I was. I wanted to be close to God. I wanted to do his will. I wanted to love other people. Here's the great irony of God's holiness. The thing that surprises me about it is that the holier you see God, the more you want to be close to him, not far from him. Right, you would, think, you would think, right, if he's holy and I'm sinful, I want to be far from him. But it's actually when I saw that God was holy and that he was worthy that I was like, man, how can I get close to this being? It's, it's a little scary, right, who he is, but I want to be close to him. And that's when the gospel becomes sweeter and purer than anything else you've ever tasted in the whole world. When you realize that Jesus is a way to be close to the holy God that we need more than anything in the world to be close to. The holiness of God is a surprising attribute, the surprising ironic uh, part of who God is that even though he's the most holy, most fearsome being in the world, we actually need to be closer to him than anyone else. That actually the safest place in the universe, the safest place in the world is being close to God when you're treating him as holy. That's where we go. If If the holiness of God makes us afraid, then we go to God through Jesus and rest in the perfect purity and provision God makes for us in Jesus Christ. That's where we go and where we find safety and rest and closeness and intimacy with the God who is holy, holy, holy. I want us, I want me to grow as a church in seeing God as holy, holy, holy and acknowledging and embracing this attribute of who he is. Right? If we do that as a community, this church will become a holy place, a holy space where people are loved and sin is hated. It's a supernatural thing when you can have a passionate love for people and a supernatural hatred for sin where you preach and demonstrate the gospel to people with passion. That only comes when you become passionate about the holy God. And so if we're going to be a kind of church community that's a holy place, completely dedicated and devoted to God above all and And before everything else, we need to see him first as the God who is holy, holy, holy. There's no Christian life without this. There's no following Jesus without this. And none of it makes sense unless we start with the starting point that our God is uniquely majestic, uniquely morally pure, and all things come to him and all things are directed towards him. Church, our God is holy, holy, holy. And anyone this morning who has a stronghold in your life of distraction or sin that's keeping you from going to the holy, holy God, I pray, I pray that this revelation this morning of who he is would burn that up so that we can just go to him all the more. I want to be a consecrated man. I want you to be a consecrated people to him. We're just, there's nothing else in the world that matters. There's nothing that challenges your allegiance, your devotion. You fully belong to him. You're being consumed by him, but in a way that gives life rather than death. I want to be on fire, but in the right way. I want us to be on fire for the one who is worthy of it. Let's not live dispassionate, apathetic lives that look like our neighbors and call ourselves Christians. Let's be utterly consumed by the one who is surrounded by burning angels and burn for him ourselves. Can we do that together? Can we repent of our apathy together? Can we repent of our low views of God? And let's just receive his welcome, receive his invitation, receive his provision so that unholy people, we can come here to a holy God. There's just no better news in the whole world. Pray together. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself as holy, 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 and yet you welcome the unholy into your presence. And I pray that we would not be offended by that this morning, but we would marvel at you and what you've done, who you are and what you've accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen.